0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking
1: solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they
0: need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv It's been called the worst disease you've never heard of as Coinbauer guest today, Epidermolysis pelosa a rare genetic connective tissue disorder found in one out of every 20,000 births in the U.S. We're going to learn all about it today from Brett Copeland, Executive Director of Deborah of America, the only national not-for-profit providing all-inclusive support to the EEB community. More importantly, as he would tell you, he's also the father of Rafi, who was born with a severe form of recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa RDEB. Prior to his rare disease work, Brett was an accomplished entrepreneur, starting three companies raising more than $30 million in venture financing, where he led business development and marketing. He's also chair of the board of directors of the Foundation for Cell and Gene Medicine, is a member of, of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, or ARM, and past chair of the board at the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Elsevier CEO, Kumsal Bayezid, for recommending Brett for the podcast. Uh, her daughter and Rafi were classmates together some years ago. And so, Brett, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Shiv. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: You know, I obviously know a lot about your background and Kuba Cell filled me in a bit. I'd like to start for our audience's sake with in your own words, telling telling us about your you and your family's rare disease journey.
1: Uh sure. A patient journey, always uh, you know, a big thing to talk about, and especially in biotech and, and pharmaceuticals, I like to understand. You know, the burden of living with a disease like this. So I was indoctrinated into the world of rare disease just about 15 years ago, back in November 2007, Upper West Side of Manhattan. My daughter was born. She was two weeks late. She was, you know, really great, except she was missing skin bilaterally on both feet. And on the back of one hand. And at that point, the official diagnosis was she was just overcooked. That was the official diagnosis by two physicians. So that's what I now call a total waste of a half a million dollars in education. (laughs) But, you know, about six hours later, while I was out somewhere on the west side with some friends working on a hangover to celebrate the, the birth of our daughter, I got a call from my wife. I said, well, they just took her to the NICU. And I don't know why. And I'm kind of freaking out. And I said, I, I, you know, I would not be so concerned at this point because she did have some open wounds on her feet in the back of her hand. They're probably concerned with the concept of infection in a newborn. So they just wanted to protect her. So the next morning showed up early to the hospital. My wife and I went into the NICU. And the only way I can actually describe it was that the world fell out from underneath my feet at that point. I looked at my little baby girl. She had blisters all over her body. So generalized blistering, stuff that we we hadn't seen popped up. They had no idea what was going on, and we were being told at that point that they weren't sure if she would uh, ever leave the hospital if she made it through the next 24 hours. So that led to the next 10 days of trying to rule everything out. You know, every god-awful disorder that you could think of were tested for. And then we tended to get very – we got lucky in that, There happened to be a pediatric dermatologist who happened to be walking the floor of the NICU who happened to hear them talk about blistering. So she said, well, I I think it might be this. Let's test for it. So they did a a punch biopsy and they called immunofluorescence to see if there was a lack of protein. They do protein staining. It came back about a day later and saying it is indicative of recessive dystrophic. Epidermolysis bullosa, and let's just say EB going forward because it's a mouthful. So what that means is my daughter doesn't have the ability to produce collagen 7. So we've all heard of collagen. This is a specific type of collagen. That is the building block in the, of something called anchoring fibrils, which are what holds the two layers of skin together. So if you think about those two layers of skin as Velcro being held together by latches, she doesn't have the latch any of the latches, which are of the anchoring fibrils. So any friction or trauma will create a blister or just a skin tear. Given the the rules of, of New York and getting on Medicaid, that's when I first spoke to Deborah of America. Their nurse was incredibly helpful, telling me what we would need, what to expect, what our insurance needs would be, what wound care supplies we would look at. And so we spent the next 30 days in, in the NICU so that she would automatically qualify for Medicaid. Now what I will say is the second we got that diagnosis, the first thing I did was ran to my brother. I ran to the phone, called my brother, who was a surgeon at that time. Um, I, I said, Adam, they think it's something called depidermolysis. Bl- bl- and he said, oh, four-letter word hung up the phone, ran to the nearest computer and and started uh, Googling it. And I think we could all figure out that Google is not your friend at that point in time. So when I saw that she would have a very short life that was really going to be about pain disfigurement, incredibly painful disorder that is financially taxing, emotionally taxing on top of physically, and that there was no treatment or cure, not even on the horizon. At that point. So that's when I contacted Deborah. They gave me all the information. And then shortly after we moved, we left the hospital, we went back to our apartment on the Upper West Side. The chairman of the board at that time said, given your background, would you be interested in joining uh, the board of directors? Of Denver, the formal title is the Distrophic Epidermal Lysis Research Association of America. That's a terrible email address, so we go by Denver. (laughs) And would you be interested in joining? Um, And our first thought, talking to my wife about it, because you know it is a commitment. Talking to my wife, you know, we felt that we were lucky in that I was at that time choosing the insurance company, the insurance uh, coverage for the company I was working at. We felt that we had more means than others, and. Knowing what this disorder does to people and how it attacks them physically, financially, emotionally, we felt we wanted to give back. So that was one aspect. The other aspect was I wanted to know every international researcher on the planet. and I wanted to know what was going on, if anything would be considered promising. wanted to funnel money there. And should there ever be a clinical trial or more than one, we wanted to be in the top of the list at that point. So the strategy paid off. I should say I joined the board of directors in January of 2008. By the end of that year, my daughter was uh, the eighth kid in the world to undergo a stem cell transplant in hopes to treat her cure So we moved to Minneapolis, where she underwent the procedure at the University of Minnesota. Two years later, came back to New York. I was a little disillusioned with the organization, it was having financial difficulties and I said, you know, to my wife, oh, we're going to go out and start a foundation and, and put them out of business, and and she looked at me and said, "Don't be stupid, you know. Take it all. It's got name. It's got name cachet. It's got a board of directors. It's got money in the bank. Do something constructive with it." Uh, so in January 2011, I became the executive director, and at that time, there was no translational research. There was academic research, but nothing to be uh, considered translational. And since then, we have our first product approved in the European Union. Now we have our first gene therapy, what they call in vivo gene therapy, scheduled for approval in February of 2023. And we have two other gene therapies currently in phase three now. So there are multiple avenues being looked at. And I can say that I guess the past year, past two years has really been the first time that I've said I'm working for my child's life, not for beyond her. So that's an that's an exciting thing.
0: That's an incredible, incredible background and, and progress. I know, you know, the rare disease parents and families and patients I've spoken to, it's never fast enough, but even given that time, time scale, things seem pretty, pretty amazing, the progress you and, and the team have made. Before we go into kind of more in-depth on the policy stuff, which I know you're, you're pretty expert at, what is you know life like for Rafi and your family on a day-to-day basis these days?
1: Um, Well, you know, it's a a difficult journey, more so for her than me. The best way I can start it off is, do you remember the last time you had a paper cut and you put Purell on it, that sting and that burn? Now imagine 60% of your body being an open wound and you just sat in a bat of Purell. That's what life is like on a daily basis. Um, And then there are some good drugs, oxycodone, other stuff out there that don't quite take enough of the pain away. So you're looking at, you know, anticipatory anxiety for bath and bandage changes, standard of care, which is every other day. These things can take four hours to to undergo between removing all the bandages, doing the the actual routine or the procedure, and then rebandaging. And that doesn't include setting up and cleaning up. So it is, in essence, a full-time job just in managing her care. She wakes up very early. I should say with EB and her type in particular, the only thing not affected are brains and lung. So her entire GI tract is, is, in fact, is affected from her mouth straight down to her buttocks. So going to the bathroom is incredibly painful. Eating is difficult. Her, she has to have a surgery every eight weeks to widen her throat. Uh, It's called an esophageal dilatation. They really just stick a balloon down there, pop open scar tissue, and then she's good for seven weeks until, you know, we need the next one. But life is challenging. She's in a wheelchair, you know, but she goes to school and she has a group of friends. She hates when people say, you're an inspiration because she's like, I'm just living. You know, everyone has issues. You know, it's just a question of degrees. I don't know why I'm inspir. She says, I don't know why I'm inspirational because... You know, I, I just, I wake up, I go to sleep, you know, and I do everything in between. So she's pretty resilient. She's also a pretty special kid. She had a Make-A-Wish from the Make-A-Wish Foundation, an incredible organization. Most kids her age would want to see Selena Gomez, something like that. Her choice was Jane Goodall. So uh-huh.
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: It really is. It was great. I think my wife and I got more out of it than, than my daughter or than Rafi did, but it was a great day. Our mornings start, I'll tell you what our journey looks like from a parental point of view. It started about 4.45 in the morning when we get up and start giving her the medications that she needs. And everything from growth hormones to pain medication to levothyroxine, she gets about 10 minutes of every morning. You got to space it out over time. She gets fed overnight through a G-tube and a pump, so it's easy for us to to give medicine. Make the bandages, wake her up about 6.30 to get her to school by noon. So it's a long process. It's You know, we change about half the bandages. Sleeping through the night is not a reality. So I haven't had a good night's sleep since maybe grad school. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess your body gets used to it and you certainly live on a lot of coffee. But uh, so it's, it's a difficult slog. Um, and the only thing that's really helped has been the hope for treatments, given the number of avenues. I know we'll get back into that. But now that something is really Working very well, it, it's helping a lot. Hope has now turned into an expectation of a better life.
0: That's awesome. Well, th- thanks for breaking that down. I will say two touch points based on what you mentioned about Rafi, the Make a Wish Foundation. You you know this because you know John Crowley and we had him on the podcast. He was on the board of the Make a Wish Foundation, and now his daughter, kind of a, it's really interesting. Her Make a Wish was going going to Disney. Megan, you know, she graduated the Masters of Social Work recently from UNC after finishing up Notre Dame. She's now working at the Make a Wish Foundation. That's great. Um, that's a that's a more recent update. And the second is the Jane Goodall. I, I I hope I'm sure you have pictures, maybe even there's some footage of that. We'd love to see it. So I'm talking to you right now. I'm in New York. I just got here because one of our other podcast guests was Chelsea Clinton. She and her dad have taken a good interest in rare diseases as well. She's involved with some some rare disease groups. And so she's having this reception with the global Clinton Global Initiative. It's about global health equity and, yep. and a lot more than just one one topic. But invited me over to talk to her a bit about rare disease work, uh, David Fagenbaum, who you know from Chasing My Cure. And she and her mom just came out with this Apple TV series I recommend called Gutsy. And one of the episodes, they're with Jane Goodall. So okay. there's all sorts of interesting connections. If I see her, I'll mention that to her. Uh, please, I, well. I'd love to
1: talk equity and access with them. I mean, that's a huge topic when it comes to rare, any disease, but rare disease in particular.
0: So that, yeah, let's get into that. I mean, obviously, you know, you're talking you're in Boulder, Colorado, you moved from New York largely because of insurance coverage. Maybe you can go into that, you know, kind of talking about the policies and legislation you're working on to get a guaranteed insurance coverage parity for those with rare diseases sure. and then from there move into some other policies that that are currently being discussed.
1: Uh, well, I'll tell you, the reason why we moved to Colorado, you know, we, I run Denver of America, I provide insurance uh, you know, to, to my employees. And I think we can all say we hate insurance unless you absolutely need it, right? Well, a few years ago, Blue Cross Blue Shield raised our rates 100%. So it became expensive. But we were lucky we were able to get a plan with Aetna. Aetna then raised the plan 465%. So we went from $2,400 a month to insure a family to $11,500, and that's not affordable for the Clintons or like Microsoft, certainly not for a rare disease organization. So we knew that she had to be Medicaid dependent. And New York Medicaid is is woefully insufficient, wouldn't even pay for the bandages, which cost us about $100,000 a month. And there's only a handful of states that, that actually provide adequate coverage from Medicaid perspective. Colorado has one of the best children medicated out there for chronic disease. And they also have what I would argue, arguably one of the best EB centers in the country. There's a handful of ED centers out there. And here in Colorado is really one of them. So it was an easy decision. Plus, I grew up skiing out here. And I always said in college, I want to live in Colorado. So <laughs> one could almost say it's a dream come true. Now, it, it was a great move. Um, we used to fly to Cincinnati every three months for Cincinnati Children's River Care. Now we drive 40 minutes. So a huge difference in that. But in that, one of the things I knew that Deborah was missing early on when I became the executive director was a legislative side, right? Really, we didn't have much of a footprint on Capitol Hill or in the States. And clearly, from an insurance coverage point of view, from Medicaid coverage, we needed to ensure that our community was being adequately covered with insurance, which right now, only about 32, 33% of our population has adequate coverage. So, I mean, one of the things that Deborah does is give out free bandages. But when you're only looking at about seven or eight states that provide adequate coverage, it, it's really difficult. And not everybody is in the position that I am where I can move. I can leave my family in friends behind. My job follows me. So, it, you know, I, we're again lucky. But so we started shaping a piece of legislation called the EB Care Act, which at that point would have guaranteed that genetic testing was done because most insurance companies. Didn't, don't consider it medically necessary. Many Medicaid's don't they consider it experimental? Clearly, genetic testing is not experimental. But if there is no treatment or no cure, it's not considered medically necessary to have a genetic test. And at that time, our genetic test was $3,400. And they are still, whole genome screening is expensive. Rapid genome screening is expensive. There's a whole exome. And then there's now something called panels as well, which can be $250, but it's important to get these things covered. So EB Care Act would have guaranteed that insurance companies, Medicaid's pay for the bandages for any medication that is necessary and out of state coverage, right? Because most clinical, no one really knows about also no one knows about EB and there's only like five or six really good clinics out there that are associated with high school. And they're always cross, cross state borders, so getting that paid for is also difficult. What we found at the time, we had bipartisan support, but doing anything in government is difficult. And what we found, one, we needed more data, right? Because we could say, hey, it costs $100,000 a month. It costs $10,000 know, $10, a month to cover. And they said, show me the, show me the details. So actually, one of the things we're doing now is develop a burden of illness model, an economic burden of illness, looking at adjudicated insurance claims and and, building what does it actually cost more than just my ad hoc analysis of uh, two years of EOBs, explanation of benefits, which showed $1.3 million a year to, to take care of my daughter. So we need that from a policy perspective. And then there's another side. Um, I do a lot of work with other rare disease organizations, Global Genes, RDLA. I used to work with Nord, you know, Foundation for Selling Gene Medicine, Arm. Strength in numbers, right? When you really want to get something passed, you need a tremendous number of co-sponsors on bills. and you need the Christmas tree bill to attach it to and all that kind of stuff or an omnibus. And so when you have uh, greater numbers, you're able to put something together that can make more sense. So... One of the things we're working on is called Epic RD. It is equity and, you know, parity and insurance coverage. It's making sure that Medicaid and Medicare will, there's a lot to it, so I don't want to go too deep into the woods uh, because it's a deep, deep rabbit hole. But it would guarantee that if there is an FDA approved medication for a rare disease, that Medicaid and Medicare would pay for it, that it would pay for durable medical equipment like wheelchairs, bandages, which is problematic with many insurance companies now, it, you know, that appeals and prior authorizations would be streamlined. So it, it's very deep. And there are other pieces of the legislation that are just as important. Precision Medicine Answers for Kids Today Act, right? Which guarantees that Medicaid will pay for genetic testing. Because I'll tell you, as someone that works with biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies, now they start asking, what is the specific mutation? That is there, right? It's not just, oh, it's a genetic mutation, because we're beyond small molecule drugs at this point, right? We're at base editing and, you know, prime editing and read throughs and exon skipping. So you need to know specifically what they are. So genetic testing is required. So in this particular bill, Medicaid will be required to pay for the uh, genetic testing and the mutation analysis when indicated. But more importantly, because it's taxpayer dollars that. You don't just go to the most expensive test that will give you the most information, but it is important to allow the geneticist or whoever is in charge of the case to choose which testing is more, uh, which is most appropriate. So whether that's panels. So like these days with EB, you can just select, you know, 10 genes to look at or 18 genes. So you can do a panel, which could cost about $600, $700, maybe, depending on the number of genes you're looking at as compared to three, four thousand dollars. And and so there are there are a lot of very there's the stat act. I mean we work on there's a new piece of legislation every other day.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's amazing. And then hopefully hopefully this one gets passed because one of our previous guests too is Philippe Pacter, who Kumsal, the Elsevier CEO, also introduced me to, and they had an issue of cross border care when his daughter Lizanne was born in France, but the Center for Excellence for 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 uh, Pierre Robin sequence was in Germany, yeah, and being able to get all of that and get it reimbursed by EU Commission became a whole. It still is a kind of a whole whole issue, um, and so similarly, like going from New York to Colorado and making sure that you're getting coverage through Medicare and Medicaid for these rare disease patients and families is, is critical. So that's that's the care. Uh, you know, one thing we talked about before on our first call after Kumsel introduced us was you know the the 40th anniversary of the Orphan Drug Act is coming up. Uh, in 2023, signed January 4th, 1983. That obviously was a massive piece of legislation. I know you know they're the person who helped write it. I'm curious, that's the first 40 years. How do we make, like, what type of legislations are working and or what do you think is are you most excited about for the next 10 years to make sure that we create a lot more. So it isn't just paleo-driven care for Rafi, but like we're we're leading the treatments. I mean, you obviously have some good news on that front, hopefully in the next couple of years. Uh,
1: Look, the Orphan Drug Act is something you have to continue to protect. And it's an evolving piece of legislation. It's not in itself static. So one of the things that the Orphan Drug Act did was provide some incentives for drug development within rare disease. Because if you have, say, a thousand people, you know, that could be eligible for a treatment, what drug company in their right mind is going to go out there and develop for them, right? It's just, it's not cost effective. so you're constantly making sure that those incentives stay intact. Great example is something called the um, Pediatric Rare Disease Priority Review Voucher, right? And it gets set to what they call sunset or go away every few years. But what this is, it's probably one of the most um it's the most interesting and successful incentives out there so let's say you're developing a drug for a rare disease for eb all right and you get that drug approved you have then applied for this review voucher and if you are get if you are eligible for it and you get it your next drug uh, gets expedited review so 6 months instead of 12 months right But the most important thing about it, and that in itself sounds great, but in rare disease, six months is nothing. You can wait that out, right? But it's a sellable asset. So a small single asset company can go to Pfizer, can go to Novartis, and sell that expedited review for their next blockbuster drug. And so when you're looking at hundreds of millions a month, right, then it's pretty significant. And the going rate right now is $110 million for that. Um, and so you're able to recoup a lot of your research spend in that. In that, uh, So, you know, a few years ago, it was set to expire. We did a lot of myself and, and a few other people did a lot of advocating on Capitol Hill. I wrote a piece for, um, what was it, Politico or something along those lines as well. Um, and thankfully, Congress sought our way and it was extended. And then it was extended again now through, I think, 2024. So it's important to keep that going. And the other ones are PDUFA, right? Which is uh, user fee laws. It basically funds the FDA. So before there was something called PADUFA, and we're on PADUFA 7 right now, I'll give you a concept here. It's a way to fund the FDA. So now the FDA is, is not only funded by taxpayer dollars through Health and Human Services. Anytime a drug is approved, applied for, biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, pay a license, a user fee. Right, and that funds the FDA. But here's the more important part: drugs used to take forever to get through the regulatory pathway, but because of Paducah, that time has shrunk. You, you know, to six, to seven months potentially. So it's incredibly important, and it's a must-pass piece of legislation that is right now being batted around, uh, you know, in government. But there's going to there's a continuing resolution, and now we're going to have an omnibus package, and it'll get you know, authorized in the, the omnibus the for sure. Um, mostly because people that I work with are are pounding pavement and uh the telephones to make sure that senators and congressmen vote for it.
0: That's yeah, that's incredible. Those this it, it reminds me of how important it is to understand these details because something we certainly don't learn in med school. And that actually brings me to a question I I, I like I love to ask, you know, ultimately osmosis is a teaching company. We like to take complex, you know, complex things, whether it's EB or diabetes and explain it in a very enjoyable, efficient visual, obviously manner. Sure. You know, if, if you could snap your fingers and teach, you know, any audience, be they the legislators, be they healthcare professionals, med students, researchers, whomever, the general public, any subject, like design a video or a course, uh, you know, you don't have to say it's in legislation, but I'm curious what it would be and, and to whom and why.
1: Well, from a med school perspective, know that while uh, many of you may go into academia and academic research, know that you're going to come up with the science, but you're not necessarily the ones going to commercialize it. So, you know what you want to also understand is what they call the regulatory pathway: how to get your invention from the bench to the bedside, right? How to translate through that whole progress, and and the regulatory pathway is incredibly. Difficult, right? You know, it's certainly much more than disproving the null and saying, oh, my God, it works in a mouse model because a lot of things don't translate from mouse model over. Understanding the regulatory pathway and then being able to work with not only patient organizations, because it's most of the time the patient organizations that are funding the work that you're either doing or going to do, right? You want to get the patient perspective in drug development and even in early stage innovation. I guess, at this point. Because if you're interested in collagen 7, laminin 332, and and this particular disorder, you want to engage with the patient organization. Because what a clinical trial participant or a, a guinea pig, you know, will endure, you don't understand, right? So you need to understand what, you know, oh, I've got this great small molecule, or I can do this, uh, editing, but they have to get 17 injections every day for six weeks. To an academic researcher, you know, you may understand that it'd be difficult, but it's not going to stop your research, right? But there may be a better way to deliver the medicine. So engage in the patient population, right? Engage in the organization to find out what is clinically meaningful to them in this case, because that will guide some of your research in how you define a therapy over time. You know, I think it's important. And always keep your eye down the road. Right. Keep your eye on what, from a regulatory perspective, you need to do in order to do what you want to do in the in the early stages of thought to help people. Because you can come up with an innovation, but if you don't think six steps down the line, you got to play some chess, not checkers, in this case. And you don't think six steps, it may never get to where it needs to be, into the patient's hands, into their body, and eventually help them. So it's really important. To look down the line, and people like you know me, and there are some, there are just some incredible rare disease leaders out there that just they know the science in some cases better than the academic researcher, right? Pick up a phone, give a call, engage.
0: I love that. Those are all great pieces of advice, and you're clearly clearly among them. I mean, you remind me a bit of uh, a, a recent guest we also had on the podcast, Nick Siro, whose kids. Both kids were born with a one in 500,000 condition called Alcaptanuria, AKU. And like you, he got really involved in the AKU society. Unfortunately, there is a therapy that's keeping his kids in very good health relative to where they were or where other people with AKU could be. But he's also very involved in Beacon, which helps rare disease patient groups, and Orchard, which is doing OCD therapy, has, has funded two clinical trials on OCD that are starting. He has obsessive compulsive disorder. Similarly, when you when I read your bio, it's very impressive because Deborah clearly why you're involved with Deborah, but you're also involved in several other launching, several other nonprofits, helping other companies. I'd just love to hear just briefly from you about that pathway. Like, you know, obviously you were involved in startups before and raised venture capital, et cetera. So you have that business development and marketing and organizational management expertise. But how do you, how do you pick the other things you're working on? And, you know, what are you hoping to achieve with some of them? Maybe you can give us a punch list.
1: Uh, sure. Well, uh, look. What I will tell you is that you know, back in the days where I was raising venture capital, was easier than doing it for a rare disease company. Let me tell you that because you think about you know, charitable giving is always just a very you know, it's always the same percentage of GDP. Everybody in their household, you know, each household has a certain percentage of their money they're going to give to charity, and they're going to give it to breast cancer. They're going to give it to you know Susan G. Coleman. They're going to give it to their grad school or their undergrad. And I have to go out and say, why my organization that's trying to help a disease that you've never heard of, that you'll probably never see in your life, why am I more deserving of your money? So it's actually a much more difficult raise for this. But as I said, I joined a lot of other larger advocacy organizations because some like Foundation for Cell and Gene Medicine, getting information out to patients and and communities so that they understand what is being in a clinical trial. You know, what should you be thinking about in going into a clinical trial? Now I can tell you that I, before we jumped into that clinical trial that I mentioned earlier, the stem cell trend, I think I spoke to almost every pediatric bone marrow transplanter in the country. I wanted to know what their thoughts were. I wasn't asking, do they think if this would work or anything like that? I wanted to understand what the potential pitfalls were. And what I learned from clinical trials in general is you can get better, you can stay the same, you can get worse, or you can die. Right? So those are your four options. And you have to be willing to accept each one of them. Not all clinical trials will say you're gonna die, or that is not always one of them, one of the options, but you have to understand what the clinical trial is. So that kind of educational material, we've put together some some shorts, some infographics discussing what you should talk to your physician about if you're considering going to clinical trial and stuff like that. Other organizations that I've been in from an advocating side is, is really developing policies that help drug development in general, right? Because the only way, it's really easy to demonize biotechnology and, and those medicines that charge too much. But it's really easy. Right. But in the end, you have to think they're the only ones that are going to help you in the long run. Right. So doesn't mean you should let them take advantage of you by any means. But, you know, putting in policies, you know, such a, like incentives for rare disease, like policies about consistencies across the regulatory pathway, the FDA, you know, these things that support drug development, that make it more efficient and more timely, less costly in the long term means you will get help faster. So that's really why I started going, you know, to some of these larger organizations, because you know that those policies that help biotechnology eventually help me. Right. And and they help my daughter more importantly. So that's that's you know incredibly important. But as you mentioned, I'm also in the process right now of starting up another foundation. Through a venture capitalist that I know, I met this this gentleman. I think we've all heard of BRCA mutations. Uh, It's mostly known within women that if you do have this BRCA mutation, the first thing you do is either have a hysterectomy or, you know, you can have radical mastectomies. It also affects males, right? So prostate cancer or pancreatic cancer, he has a BRCA1 mutation, so he's had prostate cancer. He's very well off, so he has... uh, you know, committed to funding the beginning of this organization with $20 million to make a big difference in BRCA. Now, that could also lead to because it's a rare disease. Now here's another reason really to invest in rare disease research because you're you are showing that certain platforms and certain ways of addressing diseases work. And you can do it in an expedited method and then you can take that to more prevalent diseases like diabetes, like cardiovascular like uh, other type of wounds and and stuff so take advantage of the shorter road <laughs> right and eventually it'll 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 play out but to do like it's a very complicated pathway mm-hmm. so you can't ignore the legislative side you can't ignore the academic side you can't ignore the commercial side You have to really have your hands uh, in as many, you know, areas or fingers and pies, whatever you want to say as you possibly can, is another piece of that for those that ever start up a company, what I can tell you is hire for your weakness, not your strength.
0: Yeah. That's some that's some really good advice, and and again, very impressed with the depth and breadth of what you're doing. Hopefully, this new nonprofit. Wishing you the best on that launch and, and the impact it, it. I'm sure it'll have. We're coming up in time, so the last two questions I have for you. Speaking of advice, you know, you gave someone starting a company advice and hiring for their weakness. What advice would you give to our audience, primarily current and future healthcare professionals?
1: Well, you know, my disease really has been in, in EB. It's it's really been uh, under the dermatology umbrella. Right As the coordinators of care, and it's been in pediatric dermatology, and a lot of these rare diseases are pediatric in nature, and with more therapies coming down the road, we need more adult physicians in these rare diseases because as an adult, you can't get treated in a child hospital in a pediatric hospital right you you the adult physicians have to think about more things than pediatric physicians so in in evie's case, it's actually We opened the one and only adult clinic in Philadelphia at Jefferson University. It is the only one in the country. So once you get past the age of 23, uh, you know, you don't have any specialists. So, and dermatologists generally get a bad rap, you know, cosmetics and all that. It's fine. I have more respect for dermatologists than most other physicians, mostly because you just think about the number of things that manifest in the skin. Right, it's a large organ, you name it. So I would say for those that are thinking about dermatology, pay attention to EB because we now have or we will have in the very near future medicines and therapies that are going to extend lifespan beyond pediatrics, and it's going to be imperative that these people get taken care of as adults, not just in EB, but in rare diseases in general across the board. I think you'll find that they are generally coordinators of care, and those that have specialists. Specialties in them are all pediatric. We need adult physicians for rare disease. And geneticists, and geneticists,
0: study your genes. That's a novel piece of advice. We've never heard that in over 300 episodes. That's really interesting to know that, that there's, a, there's a lack and need there. My last question, you know, we could talk for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> but is there any, any like major salient point you want to get across to our learners before we let you go for the day?
1: As you go through your stages of life, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As you, if you are parents now or you become parents, teach your kids inclusion, okay? Rare diseases in general, EB in particular, but rare diseases in general are isolating. You know, they, you will see a rare disease kid eating lunch at school by themselves. That's not a right. That's not right. They're, in many cases, no different than any other kid. They love Harry Potter. You know, maybe it's friends and the artwork. You'll find a lot of uh, commonality because in the end, they're just kids or they're just adults, it, you know, really not about bullying or anything like that. It's about inclusion, right? Don't be afraid to go up to that kid that looks different, right? Don't stare, uh, you know, ask questions. Don't be afraid, because when I look back at my childhood and I ask myself, would I be inclusive? You know, it's a very painful thing for me to say I wouldn't, right? I was your typical kid growing up in New York City in the suburbs of New Jersey, throwing footballs around and, you know, uh, playing video games and all that kind of stuff. And if there was a kid like Rafi in the lunch table, what would I have done? And it's a very painful, introspective you know, look at myself to say, and by the way, my first career was in clinical psychology. So, you know, to look back and to say, I know that I wouldn't have been. So one of the most important things I can say is teach your kids to be inclusive. They will be better individuals for it in the long term. And that is the best way to help those that need
0: help. That's powerful. That's very, a very powerful lesson. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, Very much agree, especially in this age, where there's so much focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's important and we like to get this across to our audience that inclusion also means disability, specific rare diseases. And that's one, one reason I think this area appeals so much to osmosis and us is because there's a great need. There's a need for education and awareness. There's so many out there. And our hope is as a company dedicated to being approachable, one of our values, is open your arms. We can help at least a, a subset of our audience think about it more, becoming more inclusive uh, with the rare disease community. So, Brett, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and, and having you on the podcast. I know, as I said, we could talk for hours, but I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. But more importantly, the work that you've done uh, for Rafi and obviously for, for many, many other people you probably will never meet.
1: Well, I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here to let people know about EB and really like congratulations on osmosis and, and raising the line.
0: Thanks so much. And with that, I'm Shek Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.